Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. Why does God let it look like he's losing? We do confess a belief in a God of unlimited power. Then a child dies. And we are aware that God could have prevented that from happening. And we know through what we have seen of Jesus, the tender heart of God toward little ones. And so it can seem like, was God not looking? Was he overcome by a circumstance, by some being or power outside of himself? Or again, there's a scandal in the church, and Christianity and Christ himself are maligned because of it. Could God not have prevented a scandal in his own church? Or some tyrant takes the helm of a nation and stirs up wars of aggression that may cost many lives. So why does God let it look like he's losing? Heaven answers us in Scripture. It's a setup. It's an apparent loss that will guarantee an obvious victory afterward. If you're watching a chess grandmaster and he makes a move and exposes his queen and the opponent takes his queen as most powerful piece, you might, looking at that, not as brilliant as the grandmaster, think, what have you done? Why are you losing? You might question his wisdom, his ability at the game. And then three turns later, you hear checkmate. He saw three turns later in a way you didn't. So why did he sacrifice his queen? For checkmate. It looked like he lost so that he could win. Or again, there's a fisherman out on his boat. He's fishing. He has a large fish there on his line. And you think, pull it in. But instead, he slackens the line. He lets out line. The fish is getting away from him. Like, what are you doing? He knows what he's doing. He slackens the line so the fish can tire itself out. So then he can easily reel it in. It looks like he's losing. He's winning. It's because it looks like he's losing that he's going to win. Now these are just dim reflections of what God is doing. Dim reflections, but there is a comparison to be made there. That when it looks like God is losing, you can be sure it is always a setup to prepare for winning. Necessary features, necessary steps leading to victory. It's a setup for what follows after. My favorite part of any movie by far is when the hero has just had enough and the music cues in the background and he looks up and now some beloved one has been kidnapped or threatened and now you cannot stop the hero. And you know it as a viewer, he's unstoppable at that point or she, unstoppable at that point. What happens after that, we call the takedown. And I want you to know that what God is doing in this world is very much like that. 
It does look like loss, just like the earlier parts of the movie. Looks like the writers of the script are making him lose. Why? Why are they making him lose? Setting it up for the takedown. So you get pumped when you watch him now win. Like I said, it's not a perfect comparison to what's happening in your life, but there is a comparison there. We have to trust God because some of you are experiencing a setup in your life for a great victory of God, but it is so painful, it is hard to see it as any kind of setup. You have to be able to trust God and trust that to God. The degree of the pain of some setups are intense, but we should not question God's wisdom in this. Whatever the pains you're encountering right now, they're not accidental, they're not mindless, they're not fruitless. They are a setup for a takedown. You will see God act and you will marvel. That is the point of our text today in 1 Samuel chapter 5. Like I said, it's a dear text to me because more clearly than almost anywhere, it demonstrates that when God seems to be defeated, when he lets himself look like he has lost... It is only so he can get into the heart of the enemy and take them down. So we have seen just recently here in 1 Samuel how God allowed his own people, the Israelites, as an act of judgment against their priests, the house of Eli. He has allowed them to suffer a defeat at the hand of the wicked, pagan Philistines who have slain 30,000 soldiers. The others have gone running. They have taken the Ark of the Covenant, that special possession of God's people, which represents God's presence in Israel. They've stolen it and are taking it away to their land. And the house of Eli has died. It looks like God has lost. But it is a setup for a takedown. Let me show you this. 1 Samuel chapter 5. We're starting in the first verse. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer, location of the battle, to Ashdod, one of their cities. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon, that's their idol, had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. It's not good. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place, as you do with your God. But when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord, and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Very generous on God's part. This is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how things were, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us, for his hand is hard against us and against Dagon our God. 
So they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines, that's the five kings ruling the five major cities, and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? They answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be brought around to Gath, another city. So they brought the ark of the God of Israel there. But after they had brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. So they sent the ark of God to Ekron. But as soon as the ark of God came to Ekron, the people of Ekron cried out, They've brought around to us the ark of the God of Israel to kill us and our people. They sent therefore and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. For there was a deathly panic throughout the whole city of Ekron there. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who did not die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. When God loses, He wins. There's Adam and Eve in the garden, the first creation of God, people, and they disobey God. And we say, oh no. Oh no, God's lost humanity. So that he can then enact a plan of salvation to redeem for himself a horde of worshipers, us included, so that into eternity we will acknowledge not only his great power and justice, but his mercy and his grace, things we would not have seen if he didn't lose. So God lost. Oh no, he won incredibly. The Son of God comes into the world and His political enemies take Him and succeed in crucifying Him on false charges. And you see Him upon the cross. He dies. He breathes His last. He goes into the tomb. Oh no! Oh no! He lost. The greatest victory God ever won. You know what follows. When God loses, He wins. That is what I mean to say by that. When it looks like God is losing, he's setting things up for a takedown. He's setting things up to win. This is true in your life, although we have to take that often by faith. It may look like God is losing in your life. The trial is there. You've prayed specifically about it. It's still there. Maybe it got worse. After you prayed about it, it got worse. Looks like God's losing in your life. What's he doing? He's setting things up to demonstrate His glory more than you ever could have seen it if you were not going through the trial you were going through right now. This is what we're going to be talking about in this text today. Like I said, two parts. The setup followed by the takedown. The ark is taken, oh no! <laughs> and then what follows from that. So let's look at it in those two parts and we're starting with the setup here which is really only contained mainly in those first two verses of our text. When the Philistines captured the Ark of God, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then the Philistines took the Ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it up beside Dagon. The first part of this setup, 
this apparent loss that's really a setup has to do with possession. It is the fact that the Philistines have in their possession the ark of the God of Israel, the ark of Yahweh. That's what makes it look like a loss. We were told this directly back in verse 11. When the fight happened, it says, quote, and the ark of God was captured or taken. This was told to Eli in verse 17. It led to Eli's death. It was told to Eli's daughter-in-law in verse 19. It led to her death. She names her son Ichabod. Where is the glory? Verse 22 is her explanation. The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. So then our text now, in a sense, goes back in time briefly. The news is being carried to the daughter-in-law. Now it goes back in time to when the Philistines actually captured the ark. And I'm sure it was with a great eagerness. They can't believe it. They gave that great military speech beforehand. They were afraid of this God. And now look, they have his ark. They take it. And they take it, it says at the beginning here, when the Philistines captured the ark of God. Why? Couldn't God have stopped them from capturing that? Yes. Of course, easy. It's not hard. It's easy. He could do that. But he didn't. Now in our text, speaking of the, their possession of the ark, they relocate the ark multiple times. You notice that? They bring it from Ebenezer down to Ashdod. Now the reason they can bring the ark anywhere is because it's in their possession. That's what makes it look like God is lost. They can do what they want with the ark. That's what it looks like. So we'll bring it from Ebenezer down to Ashdod. And then later, they're going to bring it from Ashdod to Gath. And then when that doesn't work, they deliberate. They decide, it looks like, right? They decide, not working in Gath, let's take it to Ekron. And finally, they'll bring it back to Israel. But that's what makes, look, makes it look like God has lost is why do they get to make those decisions? Because the ark is in their possession. That's what makes it seem like, quote unquote, seem like the ark has been taken into their possession and they are controlling it because Yahweh's defeated and cannot stop them. That's what it seems like. Surely that's what the Philistines think, as we'll see. Now, not only does this apparent loss or this setup involve possession, it involves the placement of the ark. That's verse 2. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon, that's their temple, and set it up beside Dagon. Dagon was actually a a false god invented at that time, borrowed by the Philistines from other nations. Other nations had Dagon. They seem to have borrowed the concept of Dagon, appropriated it for themselves, and throughout the book of 1 Samuel, Dagon appears to be their chief god. Of course, You know that these Philistines, like everyone else at that day except Israel, they were polytheists. They believed in many gods, but it was common to have one god who was your main god. We'll see Baal serve that role later. Dagon was actually considered by many to be the father of Baal. Like in their mythology, Baal was the storm god and Dagon was considered to be the father of Baal. The worship of Dagon in Ashdod, we have record of it continuing although Ashdod changed hands a few times, but continuing all the way up until just before the time of Jesus. So that is a thousand years of Dagon worshipped in Ashdod. He's their chief god. Because they're polytheists, the view of the Philistines, naturally, is that since they've beaten Yahweh's army, the Israelites, therefore their god Dagon has defeated Yahweh. That's how they viewed military back then. Any wars that took place. 
It wasn't a battle of the people as much as it was a battle of the gods of the people. And so now that they have the Ark of the Covenant, they therefore believe that Dagon is the winner in a contest between Dagon and Yahweh. And you see that in their placement of the Ark, they set the Ark right there beside Dagon. That's not to suggest Dagon is equal to Yahweh in their mind. They would certainly believe Yahweh is a god. But they put him there probably with the thought that he's like an attendant. That he's there to serve Dagon, their god, because he's subjugated, he's defeated. Well, they make two mistakes here. The first mistake they've made is to assume, as idolaters, that the Ark of the Covenant represents Yahweh in the same way that their idol of Dagon represents Dagon. Notice in the text when it speaks of this statue or this idol of Dagon, it just calls him Dagon. So technically there was supposed to be some distinction between Dagon the God and the statue. But for most worshippers in idolatrous religions, that distinction just goes away. So when they look at their statue... That's Dagon for all intents and purposes. So they have the Ark of the Covenant and the assumption is that's Yahweh. Here's Dagon, here's Yahweh. But notice, the Ark of the Covenant quite intentionally is a box. It's not a statue. Because Yahweh forbade any statues representing him. So that no one would accidentally think this box is Yahweh. But of course that's what they're doing. So that's their first mistake. Is to think that that box, that box, if anything, it is a footstool of God who is unseen and in heaven. It is a footstool of his glory. It's where he manifests his presence. That is not Yahweh. So that is one mistake they make to set him in there as a servant of their God. The second mistake they have made is to assume that Yahweh is a God and not the God. They are about to be disabused of both those wrong notions. For now, by their possession and their placement of the ark, it does look like Yahweh's lost. That's how the Philistines take it. I don't know all that they're thinking in Israel, but of course there's despair. How could they have lost the ark? It does look that way, but it is a setup. And when we come to the end of verse 2, the setup is complete. Now will be fulfilled what was prayed by Asaph in the Psalms. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. Up to verse 2, the Philistines have been living in a dream. And now it's time to wake up. So let's turn from the setup to the takedown. This takedown has two parts because the Philistines in their conquering of God's people, of course, no doubt they would attribute some of the success to themselves. Be like men. We won't be subject to the Israelites. They fought hard and they won. Therefore, they have set themselves up as one of Yahweh's enemies. Secondly, of course, Dagon. Later, they'll say God's hand is hard against us and our God. It's a unit. They've set Dagon up as one of God's enemies and you don't want to be one of God's enemies. But those are the two enemies and in turn, God defeats the one and then the other. So he begins here with his takedown of Dagon. Beginning in verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Don't you hate it when you wake up and your God fell down? <laughs> Isn't that just the worst, you know? 
So embarrassing. And that's what's happened here. Notice it's on his face. That's also embarrassing. That's a prostrate position, usually done in worship before the ark. So that's interesting. Or of humiliation. And it is specifically before the ark. I mean, probably at this point, if you're one of those priests and you're walking in, start your day like every other day, to the utter shock, you see, oh my, you know, this is not good. Dagon has fallen down. I assume that you assume that was an accident. Of course, you have your suspicions because he's falling facing directly the ark that was set beside him. I don't know if that required a rotation of Dagon or not, but that's rather suspicious. But of course, not to worry. It could have happened. Maybe there was an earthquake. We don't know. So you do what you got to do. You set your God back up. And of course, that action should in itself have convinced them not to be idolaters anymore. That's what we read in the prophet Isaiah very often. That if you have to pick up your God, that's, that's not a God. You don't want to worship that God. Isaiah says, for example, they lift it to their shoulders, their God, their idol. They carry it. They set it in its place. And it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Dagon actually did worse than the idol Isaiah spoke of, because at least the idol Isaiah spoke of stands there, <laughs> and Dagon did not even stand there. Dagon lies there, but notice he can't pick himself up. So in our text, they pick him up. The worshipers pick him up. You say, who's the gods here? Who's in charge here? You're picking up your God. Well, verse 4 follows, but when they rose early on the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen face downward on the ground before the ark of the Lord and the head of Dagon and both his hands were lying cut off on the threshold. Only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. Well, if verse 3 was embarrassing, <laughs> I don't know what you do about this. This is pretty bad. This is pretty low. Of course, Dagon, the statue, has fallen one more time, specifically before the ark. But they can't just set him up again because he doesn't have a head. Now they have a decapitated deity, which even they, that's a little bit of a stretch even for them. They'll worship a rock. They'll worship a tree. But a decapitated rock, even for them, that would be a bit much. So we don't see them set, set the idol up again. God's seen to that. If they thought the day before was an accident, it's becoming more difficult to convince themselves that this is accidental. It seems rather intentional, which it is. Notice too, the hand and the head were specifically on the threshold. That's where you enter into the temple. So when the priests are coming in that morning to the temple, probably that's the first thing they see. <laughs> They're still thinking about yesterday. That was weird. Let's go see what happened today. In they walk and you just see your God's head and hands laying there on the threshold. You walk inside, and as the text says, it's just his trunk. It's just his trunk is laying there, and it's down in front of the ark again. At that point, even the most skeptical has to acknowledge something more than an accident is happening here. This is very literally a takedown. They set him up, and he, God takes Dagon back down. Notice, too, as a side note, God does this remarkable thing against their statue. He does it at night. No one sees him do it, you know. 
He, they could have, but they didn't. Specifically, it's at night, and they see the effect of it in the morning. That's important. That's usually the way you see God work in your life. God chooses often to work behind the scenes and allow you to see the results of it. it happened back then. It happens today. So Yahweh let his ark get captured and placed in the house of Dagon. And all the while, the Philistines are rejoicing that they've taken the ark. But really, it was a ploy. Yahweh just wanted to get close to Dagon to wipe him out. And they served his purpose. So he says, here's my ark. Take my ark. They take the ark, put him by Dagon. All right. Good night. See you tomorrow. <laughs> chop, chop, chop. Destroys Dagon. The setup leads to this great victory. Now, the takedown of Dagon here was so severe that it led to a permanent tradition among the worshipers there at Ashdod. Verse 5, this is why the priests of Dagon and all who enter the house of Dagon do not tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. Meaning, whenever this was written, at least to that point. Although we do have, it seems, suggestions that even a thousand years later, they may still not have been walking on the threshold of the temple there. Now, there are many cultures that view it unlucky or bad to tread on thresholds, be that in a place of worship or elsewhere. We actually have one of those superstitions, if you will. When someone gets married, the groom carries the bride over the threshold of the house. So it's common for a threshold to be a part of a culture's milieu, a part of a culture's superstitions, if you will. But this one specifically came from what God did to Dagon. <laughs> it's, it is imprinted in the society of the Philistines. Now, they don't become worshipers of Yahweh. They are committed to Dagon. They're going to pick him back up and fix him. They're committed to Dagon, oddly enough, and yet they acknowledge something has happened there. God's hand is heavy against Dagon. Dagon can't defend himself, and so this tradition develops. I don't know what their thinking was with the tradition, but I mean, those priests who the greatest shock of their lives to see their God's head laying on the threshold said, we're never stepping on that threshold again. Now, I should pause here just to acknowledge that this happened to the Philistines long ago, but this is the same way that God treats our idols. Our idols, which are not made out of wood and stone, but our idols that are of the heart. Anything in your life that is set up in competition with Yahweh. It's in your heart. These could be good desires, bad desires. Could be your desire for career, advancement in your career, what you hope one day you'll attain in your work. That's a fine desire. But you take hold of that and set it up, it becomes like Dagon. And of course, you take Yahweh, you take God because he's a part of your life. But there's a massive difference between going to God for help and taking God, the ark, and setting it beside your Dagon. And saying, oh God, if you would just help me with my career. Oh God, if you would just give me the family that I so much crave and desire. If you try to treat God in that way, you might succeed. For a time. There may be a setup. It may seem that God really is serving your purposes like an attendant in the house of Dagon. Maybe you get the career advancement because you're willing to be a bit unethical if necessary to move up the ladder. You're going to do whatever it takes. Fudge the numbers. Do what it takes to move. And you might move up the ladder. But 
when you come back in the morning, this is the way God always treats idols. Dagon will fall. There may be a setup, but it's so there may be a takedown. And the wiser course of action for us is in humility and contrition, even as believers, to search our hearts and find those things we hold to too tightly. (laughs) Why don't you take those down first so that Yahweh doesn't have to? Because as you see in this text, when Yahweh does the job, he does it quite thoroughly, but it's painful. But God simply will not put up with competition, even among his people. If he finds there are dagons set up in our heart, then cue the music. It's the hero looking forward. He will not put up with that. He will go on a rampage. He will be unstoppable. He will destroy our idols. You're familiar with the saying of Jeremiah 2.13, where God says, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. That's talking about idolatry largely. Here's a big old vat where you're supposed to put water, but it's cracked down the side and the water is gone. But I want you to know, it didn't crack on accident. If you live your life forsaking God, pursuing your idol, your desire, what you want, you forsake God who can satisfy you, and here's your cistern, the water will go out the crack. And where does the crack come from? The hand of Yahweh. He cracks it and makes the water go out. That's why if you pursue your idols, if you forsake God and pursue your idols, they will look fun at first. You may succeed for a while and then you will find them disillusioning. They will not satisfy you. That is a demonstration of God's power. He will never let them satisfy you. You will need something else and something else and something else. Returning now to what's happening in our text, God has quite clearly taken down Dagon, but that is just the first of his foes to fall. Now he turns to the Philistines. Now notice, we just saw that Dagon's hands were cut off. Of course, we understand the cutting off of a head. You're dead if your head's cut off. So that suggests Yahweh's in control here. But why cut off his hands? Because especially at that time, the hands, especially the right hand, but the hands were seen as your power. So when Yahweh cuts off Dagon's head and then his hands, he says, he's not as strong as you think he is. No power there. But notice our text now. Verse 6. The hand of the Lord was heavy against the people of Ashdod, and he terrified and afflicted them with tumors, both Ashdod and its territory. That's a hand that will never be cut off. That's the hand above all other hands, the power of God Almighty. You remember that Eli's daughter-in-law, when she gave birth before she died, she called her son Ichabod, meaning where is the glory? It's interesting that right here in this verse, when it says that the hand of the Lord was heavy, that is the same word, same root word that's used for glory. Same one. Literally, you would read it in the Hebrew like the hand of the Lord was glorious. It's heavy. It's heavy. It's the same idea of a word. So where is the glory? It's right here. It's the heavy hand of God now crushing the land of those who thought they took him over. It's really when Eli's daughter-in-law was mourning the loss of the ark, she didn't realize it was just a setup. That was God pulling back his hand 
in order to get a stronger punch. And that's what he's doing now. And he unleashes a devastation on the people. Now, the exact affliction that takes place here, commentators have wondered about. We're not entirely sure. Verse 6 calls them tumors. Verse 9, when the same disease breaks out in Gath, it says, But after they'd brought it around, the hand of the Lord was against the city, causing a very great panic. And he afflicted the men of the city, both young and old, so that tumors broke out on them. And then finally, the ark gets to Ekron in verses 11 and 12. There was a deathly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. The men who didn't die were struck with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. The pattern each time is God's hand reaches the city with the ark. Tumors break out on the people. Therefore, many of them die. So you see at the end there. Therefore, there is a great panic in each of these cities. The people actually are experiencing the words that Habakkuk the prophet will later say, quote, before God went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Now, you may have heard, and if you have a King James Bible, then you know this, that some interpreters of this text following a suggestion of the Septuagint, which was a Greek translation of the Hebrew. So we're looking at the Hebrew, the original here, but there is a Greek translation very early before the time of Jesus that sometimes we look to because they had, they were understanding this back then. If you look at the Greek translation, the Septuagint, it suggests that God making a mockery of the Philistines afflicted them. How do you put it? In the rear, in the rear. So much so that Josephus, a later Jewish interpreter, understood that to mean it was dysentery. Let you fill in the blanks there. But there are others who understand this to be hemorrhoids. It makes for a good story, no doubt. And if you have the King James Bible, that's how it reads. Hemorrhoids. Hemorrhoids. Afflicted there. Um, I don't think that's what's meant here. I don't think that's what's meant here. It could mean that, but I don't think so. One of the reasons I don't think that's the meaning here is if you look at verse 12... Verse 12 suggests that whatever this affliction was, it resulted in many people dying, those who did not die. Hemorrhoids are not going to kill you. Not like that. And it's true. Maybe God gave them the hemorrhoids and then also killed them separately. Okay, But it seems like a package deal here. They're being struck with some kind of plague, some affliction. Many are dying. Others are just experiencing the affliction. So it's probably not hemorrhoids. And what is more, we're going to see later, next chapter, when they send the ark back over to Israel, they'll include these little golden mice. Now, what I'm about to say is not absolutely clear, but it's a possibility. These little golden mice, in their minds, are associated with what's going on here. Now, we don't know why. Again, the Septuagint actually says God sent rats on the land. Maybe they added that, maybe not. However... Something that would make sense of those little golden mice would be if this was the bubonic plague. The bubonic plague is named after buboes, which are swelling of the lymph nodes. And this happens when a bacteria is carried along. It's typically carried by mice. Typically, mice bring this bacteria. It infects people. There is, some say, as much as a 50% or more mortality rate. People die from the bubonic plague back then, of course. 
You have these lumps. The word that's used here in the Hebrew for these tumors, it really just means a hill or a mound, hence a lump. You have that with the bubonic plague. Maybe that's the idea of the mice. Of course, Ashdod is one of the five cities that sits on the coast. And often bubonic plagues would come from the coast because mice would come on ships. Now, I know you're thinking, this is just God. He doesn't need to use mice and stuff. He can just, boom, strike them. And you're totally right. But oftentimes God uses means. So that may be what's happening here is a bubonic plague. Killing as much as half of the people who contract the illness. Maybe, maybe not. We don't know that for sure. What we do know is that this was some massive affliction, these tumors here. And it is clear that God used this pestilence, this affliction, to take down the Philistines. I mean, the scene before us in verses 6 to 12, it's, it's a kind of mock or parody of a victory tour. The Philistines have just won This is their trophy, the Ark of the Covenant. You would expect they'd be carrying the Ark from city to city to show, look what we've done. And God reverses it for them, says, oh, you'll take it city to city. So they're bringing it city to city to try not to die because everywhere it goes, the plague follows with the Ark. Who really won the battle? They possess the Ark, but they don't really. It possesses them. Now, they summon here in the text the people who are dying. They summon the five lords of the Philistines. These are the kings of the five major cities, the Pentapolis of Philistia. They gather together trying to figure out what to do. Nothing is working. Of course, when they finally get to Ekron, they say, don't bring that here, but it's too late. It's already there. Verse 11, it's actually the people, not the lords, who come up with this plan. Send away the ark of the God of Israel, and let it return to its own place, that it may not kill us and our people. So really the question is, who won the battle? I thought the Philistines won. (laughs) The Philistines thought the Philistines won. Israel thought the Philistines won. But these don't look like people who've won. The Philistines looked like they won, and in doing so, lost. Yahweh looked like he lost, and in doing so, he won. If you're here and you are in Christ, if you're a believer, I want you to know that this chapter is for you. Not that we delight in suffering like we see in these cities of the Philistines, but you need to be reminded that the God that you serve, Yahweh Most High, he's winning. You need to be reminded of that because when you look around yourself, whether at your own circumstances or even at your country, you may see things in the news. You might think, why doesn't God put a stop to this? Why do things seem to degenerate and get worse? And in your own life, you make specific prayers and they're not answered. Things get bad. They get worse. You have a wayward child. You get a diagnosis. And Satan will come along and will tell you, God's not that interested. God's not that involved in your life. Listen, God's very involved in everything that's happening in your life right now. But you have to think of it this way. The pains you're experiencing at present, they are a setup. Scripture says, they, the suffering, are preparing for you an eternal weight of glory. It's not that you have to go through the suffering you're experiencing and then, phew, once you're done, over here God will create the eternal weight of glory. No, no. 
the suffering right now, that suffering is preparing for you the eternal weight of glory. God, by looking like he's losing now, wins greater than if it just looked like he always was winning. And that's hard for us and that's confusing for us because we just want to always be winning. Of course, we want to always be winning. But it is going to look like we're losing. This has been true for Christians through all time. The martyrs who were fed to lions, they didn't feel like they were winning. It didn't look like they were winning. Fast forward three centuries and Rome is Christian. Who's winning? Who's feeding who to lions here? Yahweh may look like he's losing in your life, but we do not walk by sight. We walk by faith. We walk by what we learn in this very chapter of Scripture. Yahweh is setting things up right now for you because the victory, the takedown that is coming when the hero awakens, when he's had enough, when he acts in your life, it will be a marvel. We see this beautifully in Colossians 2.15. Your enemies are spiritual in nature, Satan and demons. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, that's Satan and demons, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in, I think it, the cross. That's what the cross was, a loss that was a victory. If you're worried... If you're afraid, if you're saying, where is the glory? Oh, you're going to see the glory. Just wait it out. Be patient. It's a setup. Let God set things up. The ark is sitting by Dagon. I know, but give it two mornings. Give it two mornings and we'll see who's on the ground. He who vanquished the gods of Egypt and Pharaoh, who smashed Dagon and the Philistines, he will soon crush Satan under your feet. <laughs> 